0: Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and here is producer John. Hi, John. Hi, Sheila.
1: So it's dry January.
0: People leaving the cork in the bottle. They they sort of see it as a way to test themselves, to see just how much they're drinking and whether or not they could go clean. It's a big, big thing among women. I know people that are doing it, There's a know. movement, John, called Sober Sis that supports moms who now believe that they might need to check in on their wine habit. Mommy wine. Because mommy wine is a thing, of course. So many women are completely overwhelmed and they've been using wine as an excuse to help them get through the anxiety and stress. We're going to be joined today by Angela Tesker. Fora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Fora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details. Angela Tesker is our guest today. And honestly, John, this is one of what I think is probably one of the most stunning interviews I've ever done because she talks about the evolution of being an overwhelmed mom to the point where she was getting up at 6.30 a.m. to drink enough wine to get her through morning pickup all of the kind of things that moms have to do to get kids off to school. There was a time when she actually lost her kids because of her drinking problem. And she had to claw her way back to sobriety and back to health. And now she's in a role where she's helping other women. And she's really one of the most impressive women that I think I've ever spoken to in my career as a journalist. A, a conversation that is so revealing and so intimate. I really hope that you love it as much as I do. Here's Angela Tisker. Good morning, Angela. It's so good to see you. Good morning. You have such a fascinating story, Angela, about how you began as a social drinker, as many of us do, to the point that it was quite problematic for you. Would you share that story with some of the people that are listening?
1: Like most people, I started drinking at a fairly young age, around 17. It kind of just came naturally to me. I feel like I kind of always had the habit of overdrinking, I guess, compared to most of my friends, but it was never problematic after getting married, I settled down, had three girls, and I was always social with my friends and with my husband, with all of the activities that we used to have. And then throughout divorce and things shifting in my life and becoming a single mom and taking care of the responsibility of the, the girls and school and all those kinds of things, I started to find myself using alcohol for stress relief and exhaustion. And still at that point, like did not consider that problematic. It really kind of just evolved over time and I found what worked for me. It worked really well. And I got used to being able to manage what was going on in my world with drinking The problem came was when, you know, I I would be making lunches in the morning and all of a sudden there was just that one morning where I was like stressed and getting the girls ready and doing all these different things. And then I pour myself a glass of wine at 730 in the morning. And at the time, didn't think twice about it. Just thought, well, I'm really focused and really organized and getting this done and got them off to school and it just never really occurred. And that's kind of at the moment where it shifted from being a solution to Kind of a
0: harried lifestyle with the girls and with everything going
1: on to kind of something that was evolving. We called
0: this series, you know, Mommy Drinking, and that Mm -hmm. the reason for it is because of the amount of stress that women carry, the amount of responsibilities that they carry. And I think there must have been an extra excuse for you to use substance abuses when you're not with a partner who's going to call you out and say, what, 730 Mm -hmm. wine, that's not such a good idea. So I'm wondering if when you're talking now with your clients, if you see this more often, where women who have been able to be alone as they're raising their kids are more likely to have these kind of issues because there hasn't been a partner going, that, that isn't right, what you're doing mm-hmm. there
1: in society, I think it's become such a norm that we use different things for different reasons that we don't see it as problematic. We just see it as a, as a solution to a problem or not even a problem necessarily, a solution to something that we're experiencing. So we just kind of feel like we have this feeling in this moment and we identify something that's working for us. And so we continue to use it. So when I talk to the patients and the, and the clients that come in every day, many of us can't really say, hey, there was that one day, that one moment, that one time where I can identify that that's when the problem started. For some people, it can substance use really addiction takes off on its own and it starts really quickly. And then with other people, it's really hard to identify that moment when it turns from something that's working for you to something that all of a sudden is not working any longer.
0: And at one point for you, it wasn't working because your body was no longer able to actually process the alcohol, correct? Mm -hmm. Would you talk about when you recognize that?
1: I started waking up in the morning and instead of like that glass of wine or those two glasses of wine helping me make lunches, I couldn't make breakfast as well because my hands were shaking or I threw up first thing in the morning and, and being used to that as far as something that was a a hangover or in your younger days, overindulging to something that was like, I would compare it to flu symptoms, I guess, so so to speak. And, And starting to notice that once I had that first glass of wine, then all of a sudden my hands weren't shaking any longer and it was no longer feeling nauseous. And so even at that point in time, it, it just evolves to something else because you realize at that point it's problematic and yet you can still fix it by continuing to drink more.
0: Yeah. There's a conundrum in that, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, it's so strange that our body accepts it as the antidote when it's what's making us really, really mm-hmm. sick. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So tell me about how you finally found yourself in recovery. Uh, the consequences just started to outweigh
1: the benefits. So, what started happening, you know, while I was able to maintain my life and my being a mom for such a long time, all of a sudden I was starting to have consequences for those actions where I thought I was really high functioning and this is really helping. It started with little things that I would start to miss or my kids would come and they would get off the bus and they would walk in and I would be passed out on the floor. I thought I was just sleeping, taking a nap, but clearly now looking back, like those were the things that were starting to happen to eventually getting a DUI with all three of my kids in the car. It just caught up. It just, it's a slow progression that you don't see until you have a big consequence. And even that large consequence with that DUI with my kids in the car still was not the bottom for me. At that and, point. and
0: talk about the reasons why, why it wasn't the bottom.
1: I'm not really sure why that wasn't the bottom. I, I engaged in some intensive outpatient at that point in time. And I started going to 12 step meetings and I was secretarying and volunteering and I was doing everything everyone was telling me to do. Mm-hmm. And yet I was holding back on some trauma that had happened to me earlier in my life. And I wasn't addressing the mental health perspective, the mental health side of me that needed to be addressed along with the addiction. And so what happened was when I went back to my regular life thinking that I was cured and healed and I had done all this hard work, the first time something challenging came up, Mm. I didn't have the skills to be able to deal with that moment without using what I knew to use.
0: Mm. Could we talk about that trauma? Are you willing to share what had happened to you?
1: Yeah. When I was 19, um, I was sexually assaulted and I was under the influence at the time. So I was a young woman. I was living in New York city at the time it was one of those moments where you just, I was the quintessential, you blame yourself. I was intoxicated. I was drunk. I got into a car I wasn't supposed to be in. And I owned all of that, that trauma. I, I just took that in and I held on to it. And then all of a sudden I just closed it off in my mind. I shut it down. I stopped it. I said, this happened. It happens to women all the time. We get over it, put it away. It's over and done with. We move on. Not realizing that. 10 years down the road, 12 years down the road, 20 years down the road, that that trauma is still there and somehow it's going to manifest itself.
0: It's so common among people who have been sexually abused or assaulted to find a substance abuse, to be able to really self-medicate, right? Mm -hmm. So when Mm -hmm. you see these women come in that are sexual abuse survivors, what do you tell them? I try to normalize what
1: they're doing to the best of my ability,
0: and I'm not
1: normalizing the trauma, but normalizing their reaction to the trauma. Because there's so many women that will are very strong and very empowered, and and will go to police or they'll go and they'll they'll take all of the actions that we're always told to do. But there are so many of us that are shamed, and like I said, we learn how to deal with our pain and our trauma in a certain way. And that's generally by using substances or coming up with some sort of alternative that works to push that down.
0: So when you finally recognize this and you knew that you had to actually attend to your mental health care, how did the recovery differ from the first time that you did it?
1: I always tell everybody I had the combination of 12 steps. So I had the real strong recovery base that was the sober supportive community on the outside, but then I had like the full package. I got the educational variety here when I came to treatment. So I got the intensive, I've got the mental health piece. I got the, the DBT skills, the, the skills, the tools that we learn. And then I also had the 12 step recovery. So I had like this perfect triangle of care mm-hmm. and I was able to take mental health medications and work with counselors who, you know, At one point, one of my counselors said to me, and I will never forget, because I was explaining my trauma and how, what my fault was in the situation. And she said to me, you do realize that you are not to blame. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time someone told me that it wasn't my fault. And I don't think that without that piece, somebody being well-versed in that counseling setting to be able to see past my shame and be able to identify and say, this wasn't your fault. You do realize that, right? I don't, I'm not sure if I ever would have gotten into that moment because I did blame myself. I was drinking. I was the one that made a bad choice.
0: So now you're working with other people Mm -hmm. and I'm curious if hearing their stories has any kind of triggering impact for you or takes you back to that place where you felt as if you didn't know how to properly deal with it.
1: It does. But on the flip side, where I used to numb my emotions with alcohol, now I know when to be emotional and when not to. And I feel like the experience that I have to offer is from that side of being able to let people know every day, like, I understand there's nothing that you can say to me that is going to shock me or surprise me. A lot of us in recovery, we catch people off guard with that because there's that lack of understanding that you're not going to understand where I come from and, and being able to every day be like, I absolutely understand exactly where you're at.
0: Yeah. Um, To to have someone who just doesn't carry judgment with them, to have someone who is actually on the other side of recovery. How long have you Mm -hmm. been in recovery now? 10 years sober in January. You did have one relapse, correct? Mm -hmm. Can you talk Uh, about that relapse and just how common it is for people who are doing well in recovery to relapse?
1: I'm not even sure statistically what it is, but it generally takes multiple times of trying to get into recovery before we really succeeded. The people who are the unicorns that they, they just get in and they hold on, it's not as common as those of us who have like little trips and falls here and there Um, With me, I'd done the outpatient and I'd done the 12 step and I had done all those things, but because I had held back that trauma, because I'd held back that peace, I still had that. What we sometimes talk about is like secrets, secrets will keep you sick. It's one of those things where I went back to my life. I was functioning. I had my kids back in my life. I was taking them to school, doing all of the things that I was supposed to be doing. And the misunderstanding I had with myself was, oh, I've almost gotten to that year point. I've almost got a year sober. I think I'm healed. And it was just that instant thought of if I could put alcohol down for 11 and a half months, then I can certainly put it down again if I only have a couple glasses of wine. Mm. And for me, that instantly started off that reaction of now I know how to numb. Now I know how to quiet my brain. Now I know how to sleep again and deal with stress. It was that fast.
0: If you had something that you could say to to people who are experimenting with dry January, because they're like, I don't think I drink too much, but I'm just curious about it. What would your advice be for, especially women who are handling as much as women handle, Mm -hmm. who maybe are turning to alcohol every single night or every single lunch? What do you say to them? I would say, challenge yourself, challenge yourself to actually try to do that and see
1: how long it takes before even the thought is crossing your mind. I guess I would challenge people not to say, okay, at the end of this 30 days, look at what I've done. But to me more intensely, look at like after two days, I'm actually wanting to drink and I'm having to fight it for the rest of those 28 days or 30 days to actually see how long it takes before you're really craving that moment of understanding that this is what's helping you to do.
0: So getting to that
1: 30 days is great, but I think that really timing it out and seeing how long it is before you think to yourself, oh, it's five o'clock. I normally have wine at this time.
0: Yeah. It's five o'clock or, oh, I just had this conversation with my ex about child sharing Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever the number of things are Mm -hmm. that push our buttons. So you got your kids back, which is Mm -hmm. amazing. How are you repairing all of those years that you missed because you were really in relationship with your substance abuse?
1: It's hard and it's taken a lot of time. And there's still days where my kids will be like, uh, what, a, what a, my youngest said to me the other day, she's like, you weren't the best mom in the world then but you are now. It's those moments you have to hold onto. And what I really had to realize is I had to forgive myself. I couldn't wait for them to forgive me because if I had to wait for all my kids to forgive me, I would have still lived in that shame for a really long time. I had to get to the point of, I get it. I understand that you're hurt and that you're lashing out at me, and this is your process. And I had to be able to forgive myself even when hurtful things were being said. And even when hurtful things were being brought up, or you weren't there for this moment, I had to constantly forgive myself. And it wasn't an easy process. It was really a tough process, but I had surrounded myself with a really good support system. So I was yeah. able in those moments when I was breaking down, they would be like, you, you have to stay in that forgiveness mode.
0: It just occurs to me that our relationship with our kids are so raw and your kids are now at the age where they all have to decide what their own relationship with alcohol and drugs mm-hmm. is going to be. And so how do you talk to them about, you know, part of this could be a genetic risk. Part of this mm-hmm. could be the environmental trauma that you had of watching me go through it. What are you saying to
1: them? I, I've i told them so many different things. I, I've i talked to them about the genetic risk of them using substances. But what I've really tried to do and I've really tried to show them and I think that they've embraced is it's okay to go have fun. I have a 21-year-old daughter who sometimes will call me under the influence and I'm like, oh, you know, and I shake my head, but I understand I was there at one point in time. What I think that I've taught them and try to talk to them about is really enforcing that message of decide why. If you're going out with your friends and you're just going to go have a fun night, that's okay. But if it starts to turn into what am I using this for, what emotion am I trying to bury? Then let's talk about what's affecting you there. Mm -hmm. And so I think I've really built a relationship with them of their understanding of substances is they look at it a little bit closer of why they're using a substance and, and what they're using it for.
0: I want you to just take people through, there may be somebody who's hearing this and saying, wow, I actually really have a problem and I really need to deal with it. What is the process for a person if they decide to go inpatient recovery at Fora Health? If they decide outpatient is is not for me, I really need the help of a dedicated team. Uh-huh. Describe what goes on. It really kind of depends on what angle that
1: you come from. If you've become physically addicted to substances and you'll know that. I, I, I think anybody would know at that point if they're really starting to feel ill. And I'd love to address alcohol specifically because it's a really dangerous substance to withdraw from. So I would recommend for anyone who is even feeling physical symptoms when they're not using that substance to try to initiate through our withdrawal management, because that's just the safest venue to have doctors and nurses with eyes on you, making sure that that process is safe. After that, with inpatient, especially with our organization, we try to take people directly from our withdrawal management if we can, because someone who's leaving from one step to the other, it's hard to be successful when you don't have that stability on the back end of finishing like a detox program. Yeah. If you're just coming in and trying to access without doing the detox part of it first, we have a whole admissions team that you would come in and you would sit down and they do about a two-hour assessment. And sometimes that can be rough for people. It's hard to really kind of get into that how much are you actually drinking? You know, how much are you actually using of whatever substances it is? And we go through a little bit of trauma, we we try not to delve too deeply into that from day one, because that's something that we'd like to deal on the back end, but we need to know little pieces about your life. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you know, we kind of try to bring you to the floor and welcome you up. I work in residential now. I've gone back and forth through the whole entire organization, working everywhere. And we just get you set and you work with an addictions counselor and you work with a mental health specialists. We just have so many wraparound services that we try to provide to people so that they can address every single part of what they're experiencing without leaving one part behind.
0: Take me through an example of the kind of joy and presentness that you're able to feel now because you are in recovery. Oh gosh, it's, it's the daily little things. It's being able to
1: get up and have a cup of coffee. Well, it's actually being able to get up and not be nauseous. It's That feeling of like, I woke up this morning and actually, if I feel nauseous, I probably am not feeling well. And knowing the difference between not feeling well and feeling well, the little things like enjoying a meal, being present for holidays. I mean, I had a vacation I was on one time. I don't remember half the vacation with my kids because I was under the influence. And so now I get to experience all those different moments. Even the hard ones, mm-hmm. I would say the hard moments in my life now with my kids and with my family are the most rewarding because I could help other people through them as mm-hmm. opposed to being the anchor, the anchor, wow. so to speak of the family that was dragging people down.
0: Yeah. Sometimes, you know, when you are hurting and you're present to your emotions, the beauty of that feeling Informs so much. The grief comes from deep love or the anger comes from deep caring or the frustration comes from deep wanting and recognizing that must just be so hugely important for you now. It is. I love, I love when my kids get mad because they'll get really angry
1: or if someone in my family will get really angry and I'll just look at them and they'll be like, oh, you're going to ask me, what am I really upset about? And I'm like, yes, I am. So they really kind of get mad at me at points because I have this insight now. of like, let's really address what's going on. It's not about what's happening in this moment.
0: I would just like you to leave with the kind of shame lifting that people did for you. I know that there's someone listening who could probably use that shame lifted. And if you don't mind, just leaving us that way, that would be amazing.
1: I mean, I really want the messaging, especially for women. And I, and I don't want to discount men, but especially for women who do a million things every day. And we're just expected to do them well. We're always expected to do them well. And understanding and forgiving ourselves that we are not going to do everything well. And if you are using substances to help you get through life, that's okay. And there's no shame in asking for help. I think the expectation is that we are supposed to do all of these different things in life without ever asking for help, because that's what makes us brave and strong and courageous. And what makes us brave and strong and courageous is actually saying, I may have a problem and I need help and I need somebody else to help me with it because I can't do it myself.
0: Oh, that's such a perfect place to end, Angie. Thank (laughs) you so much for your time. You have been so incredibly compassionate and I was just glued to every word you said. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.